You know, he's a professional drug dealer. He isn't the one-off guy caught with a stash in his house. He's a guy who's really made a career out of it. He bought the paparazzi bar. He was living kind of the, the expat Costa del Crime lifestyle. He, he was more worried about the Kinahan cartel than anything that the, the police could do, at least if the police arrest you. You get to stay alive, whereas if, you know, the Kinahans catch up with you and they want you dead, you're not going to get parole anytime soon. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was the Irish king of the Costa until the Kinahan mob turned on him and he was forced into hiding for more than 10 years. But Peter Fatso Mitchell is back behind bars after he showed up in the Curry capital of Yorkshire working as a driver for a cocaine gang. A murky gangland story involving double crosses, greed and paranoia lie at the heart of Mitchell's journey to a prison cell in Wales, where he was locked up for 10 years for his role in the Avengers Coke gang. Today, I'm talking to Sunday World journalist Eamon Dillon about the last member of the notorious John Gilligan gang, the criminal dubbed the one that got away. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. It was a good 10 or 12 years since we last heard of Peter Fatso Mitchell. Uh, And at that point, he was arrested in Amsterdam in a flat belonging to John the Coach Trainer. but he'd gone to ground, Eamon, hadn't he, since then? We actually we hadn't heard much about him at all. Um, there was, I think, something in 2016, there was, there was something vague about it, all right. Uh, but there, there was generally, like, we hadn't heard about him, to be honest. I mean, like, you know, he, he, was, he disappeared off. So there was speculation, I think, when Gilligan got out of uh, Portlaoise Prison that time, that he may or may not have linked up with him in, in the Netherlands for business and pleasure reasons and hopefully to get started back in the drug, drugs trade again. But I think that might have been an element of speculation about that. So we, we don't really know for sure if that actually happened. But that was that was the last time he certainly appeared in any of the newspapers. So every now and then he'd kind of, his name would pop up in our newsroom anyway, and somebody would say, any word of Fatso Mitchell? And uh, yeah, we'd wonder where he was. But sure enough, um, up popped Wales News Today. Um last week and there he was his mugshot looking out at us and he had been arrested as part of an encro chat investigation there so he's gone to jail again yeah he was actually he was arrested a year and a half ago in july 2020 uh, with i think three kilos of cocaine in the vehicle he was driving down to wales it turns out this is he was the supplier to a gang in wales who brought in some fairly significant amounts and of course all the dealings were recorded and dutifully noted by the police who'd been looking at their Encro chat uh, communications. So, yeah, I mean, he, he obviously hadn't retired despite what we thought or what we didn't know about him. He was still beavering away. I, mm. I suppose it's hard to some extent when you're, when you're used to a certain lifestyle and you're used to a certain amount of money coming in, it's kind of really hard to figure out how to make as much money as you can from wholesaling cocaine unless you're going to go into high finance or something that might need a bit more education and, and connections. So certainly cocaine dealing was something that he, he never went away from. I mean, 
I mean, God, he's a veteran drug dealer now. When you think about it, he's is what is this his fourth decade as a, you know, as maybe not the top end, but certainly, you know, he's a professional drug dealer. He isn't the one-off guy caught with a stash in his house or anything like that. You know, he's he's a guy who's really made a career out of it. You know, he's always been, uh, you know, close to knocking on the boardroom door to become a fully fledged executive. In this regard, but came close but never quite made it. And uh, you know, he's still got a few years left in him yet. Like we know that he's gonna, he can he can get out after five years on license. So presumably, you know, he'll he'll <laughs> he'll still have a few years left to pick up whatever nest eggs he's left lying around. And he's already served a year and a half, really. If it was July twenty twenty when he was picked up, so we just go back a bit with. Fatso Mitchell, because um, we're showing our age, really, then that we do know him. Um, there might be younger people listening who don't know who Fatso Mitchell is. And, you know, you know, as an aside, there's so many members of the criminal fraternity all over the world called Fat. I mean, it is actually extraordinary if you're carrying a few extra pounds you're fat John, you're fat whatever, you know what I mean? If that, if there was women um, getting those nicknames, it wouldn't go down that well. And they call themselves fat, you know? Um, anyway, Fatso Mitchell, he was the guy who actually encouraged John Gilligan into getting involved in the drug business all the way back in the mid-1990s. Yeah, I mean, he, he'd done some time with uh, Brian Meehan and the two guys became good pals I mean, Mitchell was a Summer Hill kid, you know, North Inner City, Dublin. Uh, himself and, and Mian got on like a house on fire. Uh, Mian was still finishing his sentence. I think he'd been transferred down to Port Leash then. And uh, and Fatso had gotten involved in the early days of, of you know, selling ecstasy and, and, and cannabis. I think he pretty much stayed away from heroin at the time, partly because I think there was the threat from paramilitaries, um, the concerned parents as well. And it... it I think there was, to some extent, some kind of moral judgment there. Selling heroin was a step too far. It's in his own native inner city, and you could see the damage it was doing. Uh, but he was he was going in to visit visit the tosser, and he was telling them, "You can't believe the amount of money I'm making." Uh, he was doing really well, and you know, he said, "Buddy, when you come out, we're going to go into business together." And of course, me and uh, again was 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 inside with uh, Gilligan, who was keen to get in on the slice of the action and. He had his contacts via the coach John Trainer, so they were all set up. So I guess it was it was it would have been Gilligan and Trainer were the kind of the, the the boardroom executives who were supplying the finance and putting together the deals, and the likes of of, of Fatso and the Tosser were the two boys that were kind of leading the, the you know the next layer down. These were the the junior executives who were who were going to make a huge amount of money. They weren't the the kingpins, but they were going to make a load of money. They were pretty enthusiastic about it. Now, between 1994 and 1996, the John Gilligan mob made an estimated 20 million and they partied really hard. I think we have some footage of Gilligan and Fatso Mitchell out in Sandy Lane in Barbados, kicking back, enjoying life, drinking champagne and cheering on John, who's the boss of the operation. Um, They really got rich quick. And of course, we know then that Gilligan made the decision to target Veronica Gearan and everything just went wrong. Yeah, just to go back a tiny bit, I mean, there was, a, there was an insight at one stage when uh, Fatso was arrested in 1995. 
there'd been a, a shooting at a detective inspector's house. Somebody had fired a shotgun at it. Uh, I, I think he, that the same detective inspector also had some, uh, I think two of his sons were active uh, guardy as well. And, you know, were, were, you know, knew who Mitchell and Mean were and maybe had come across them on a professional basis. Uh, and so they, they were prime suspects, the two of them, for, for this attempt at intimidation. And, and pretty much he tried to he tried to suggest when he was arrested then that why would I be shooting, you know, at a cop's house? I'm too busy making money. And he actually started complaining about how hard it was to get guys to sell drugs. You're paying them a grand a week and they won't get out of bed before lunchtime. And he was at this moaning, moaning away. He was complaining about RTE, had done a documentary at the time and suggested he was making 100 grand, the equivalent of 100,000 euro a week. And he says, there's nothing like that. I'm only making 60,000 euro a week. Well, it was in pounds at the time, but it was the equivalent. And like, they were gobsmacked. But this was his strategy to try and show, uh, you know, that he, he wasn't, um, you know, he was just too busy to go around firing shotguns at, mm. at, at guards. He did far more important things to be doing than mere, mere acts like. absolutely beneath him. And I think even at that stage, the guards didn't necessarily believe him and kind of, you know, they would later discover he was actually telling the truth. It was probably the only time in a guard interview he ever told the truth. He uh, was such different times. It's like as if we're talking about, you know, a different century there when you think about them freely talking about the kinds of money they made. And of course, all that changed after the murder of Veronica Gear and the establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau. And the state went for that Gilligan organisation like never before. And they had fled to Europe and the UK, but... Um, Gardy went out and brought them back. Gilligan himself was extradited from the UK. Um, and all of them nearly came before the courts, except, of course, Mitchell and Trainer, who were the ones who got away. So what happened, Mitchell? Where did he go or where do we, where, where do we ne- next see him showing up? I suppose he, he pretty much got out of Dodge as soon as he realised what was happening. I mean, the formation of the Criminal Assets Bureau meant that, you know, any assets or property or cash that he had was never going to be safe again. As it turns out then, the investigation, they were able to link him to the lockup that the gang was using. And I mean, that's what they were, where they were distributing the drugs from and they found fingerprints there, but there was never any concrete evidence uh, to suggest that he was involved in the direct uh, murder of Veronica Guerin. So to some extent, there wasn't really enough on him, I think, to charge him. Uh, so he, he ended up in, in Spain. Like he, he was, he was the kingpin. He was the, pretty much the, you know, the main Irish guy in Spain at the time, you know, possibly George the Penguin Mitchell based in Spain and sorry, in, 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 in Holland at the time was, was the only one bigger. Uh, and again, you know, he was probably dealing, he, he more, he probably was dealing with him and with trainer, from from Spain, where he's you know he was living kind of the the expat Costa del crime lifestyle. You know he'd bought the paparazzi bar in a, an upmarket part of of the the resorts. You know just just behind Port Porta You know he he kind of he he was really enjoying it. You know he really was in the swing of it. He was uh, you know there was the Liverpool gangs were coming out. The the lower the lower down Irish criminals were coming out. I mean, you had the likes of Jaws Byrne were one of the visitors that the expose, the, the Sunday World did at the time. And he was photographed there. So, I mean, they, they were, he was very much in the centre of it. I mean, there were so many, 
I remember at the time discussing it with our colleagues um, and there were so many different characters knocking around, you know, the, the gophers with their, their, their man bags with four different or, or sorry, something like 14 different mobile phones and they'd be standing to one side and when a phone would ring, they'd, they'd trot over to the, the whichever boss they were working for and hand them that phone and they'd hand it back and move back to their little place under the shade waiting for the bosses to finish their cocktails and doing business or whatever. So this is very much the hub and it's where... It's where Christy Kinahan Sr. would have sent, you know, the younger Daniel and the young uh, Christy Jr. at the time to do business. Because, of course, Kinahan Sr. didn't like Fatso Mitchell, you know, didn't like Gilligan either. So there was, a, there was an element that he wouldn't have wanted anything to do with that group again. I suppose they were they were toxic, you know, in terms of criminality. If you wanted to draw attention to yourself was one way of doing it was to attach yourself in any shape or form to whatever was left of the Gilligan gang. Uh, and 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 that's where he was, and that's where the the Sunday World caught up with him that time. And I think what was it, two thousand and six, two thousand and five, around that time. No, that was two two thousand and eight, actually. So that gave him really <clears throat> ten years to establish himself to that level down there. And yeah, he was the king of the Costa at that stage. Um, <clears throat> he'd bought Paparazzi Bar, and I think. Uh, our colleagues photographed him doing exactly as you've described, sort of sitting back, being the bit of the godfather of crime. People were coming in, they were doing their business. He'd give them the nod and they'd join him at the table and um, real sort of movie stuff. And he was confident and he was fit. He was out jogging. He had a girlfriend over there. He owned a house, a beautiful villa with a swimming pool. It was a long way from where he came from in the north inner city. And it did appear that he genuinely was untouchable. Back home, Gilligan was serving his 17-year sentence. Um, at that point, Dutchy Holland, who was identified as the the trigger man by the Garda officers um, investigating the killing, he died in prison. Actually, sorry, in 2009, he died in prison. So he, had, he was in, in jail. Mian was obviously serving life. Russell Warren and Charlie Bowden were gone to the wind in the Witness Protection Programme. And... Um, Paul Ward was had initially been convicted of Veronica Gearan's murder and that was later quashed. So Peter Mitchell at that point in 2008 was the guy from the gang who was doing the best. Um, but <laughs> a number of things happened around that time and uh, not least his exposure in the Sunday world. In February of 2008, Paddy Doyle was killed. Paddy Doyle would have been one of Mitchell's childhood friends from the inner city. And he had been working as uh, Freddie Thompson's hitman in the Crumlin Drimna feud. He'd moved out to Spain because a lot of Garda heat was on him. And there he had sort of settled into the, the scene out there and was moving between Fatso's operation and maybe the emerging Kinahan mob of the, the conjoined Kinahan Hutch operation. Um, but... He was shot dead and initially, I think investigators out there believed the Russians had taken him out, but it would later emerge it was actually the Kinnahans, his own, that took him out. A couple of months after Paddy Doyle was murdered, the Sunday World rattled up to pa Paparazzi Bar and photograph uh, Mitchell. Very embarrassing for him, that expose. Um, just explain that, how that would be would go down in the underworld as such, bringing the the media to to these kind of into these private meetings. 
Well, I, th- I think part of the problem for Fatso was the people that we never identified in those pictures. Uh, so they realized all of a sudden their identities were, were possibly already known to police because they would have assumed that it was a tip off from police in either the UK or in Ireland that would have tipped off a Sunday World photographer to go and take pictures of that place. Or the, the alternative from their point of view was that somebody in their, within their ranks was, was telling tales outside a school. So there was, you know, there's already a lot going on. And then apart from that, as you say, the fact that no one even noticed, you know, an amateur surveillance person like getting, getting pictures. I mean, look, I mean, like we've all done our, our, our bits driving around, taking shots like with a camera. Uh, but like, you know, we're nothing, absolutely nothing compared to what law enforcement agencies do when, you know, they'll lose all their really high tech techniques to, to, to get their surveillance in place and all the rest. I mean, like we're cack-handed amateurs in comparison to them. Mm. So for, for so, you know, so for his buyers or the people that he was dealing with to have them potentially exposed like this, it, it was it was shoddy. You know, it was seen as just, you know, weak. Uh, and, it was, and it was clearly it was, it was clearly considered a real breach of, of security for them. I think it was at around that time that I think Christy Senior then was taken into custody in Antwerp, where it was over the, um, which he ended up serving time for over, over bribing police officers and the, there was other corruption charges as well. And I think he decided, or you know, they kind of put two and two together and got five and a half and decided that you know it was it was Fatso was the cause of all his all his problems. I mean, the, we, we don't know that for sure, mm-hmm. but. You know, at the same time, the Kinhans were rapidly climbing up the ladder. I mean, they obviously had better connections, more direct. Whereas, you know, if if, if Fatso had his connections from the, you know, from his time in the Gilligan gang, he was still only there as a kind of a, a secondhand contact to, to some extent. Whereas the Kinnahans, as we know now, had, you know, firsthand contacts and, and those in turn had firsthand contacts even further afield. So the Kinnahans were on a much faster trajectory at that time and they just basically you know whizzed by Fatso who's you know who, who was who was caught asleep and I mean and the fact that the Sunday world turned mm. up and took a bunch of picks at the time pretty much underlined that so that's when you had then I mean Paddy, Paddy Doyle was shot dead as you said and six months later uh, a gunman came after Fatso Mitchell uh, I, I think you've written about that there you've written about that this week and only for the fact that the gunman stumbled hit him in the shoulder, he could easily have been killed. Two innocent people were also hit by bullets at the time as well. Mm. Uh, And that was it. That was it for him in Spain. And you see, the thing was back then, like, I mean, you're talking 2008, there was, you know, we were looking at reports and it was very believable that the Russians had gone after both Paddy Doyle, really, and uh, Fatso Mitchell. Now, I'm sure Fatso Mitchell knew damn well who'd gone after Paddy Doyle and who'd gone after him. But from our point of view, it was it was believable that they'd fallen foul of a different gang and all the rest of it. But I think probably everything that happened in that period was much closer to home. And um, following the, the expose in the Sunday world, of course, paparazzi was raided. And I think Mitchell was had his collar felt by the police there, which when weeks later, Kinahan was lifted in Belgium, you know, two and two often uh, makes five and a half in gangland. There is no room for coincidences. Sure, there isn't. There is no belief that 
things don't happen for a reason. And obviously it's a paranoid world. So somebody's always to blame and maybe they're right. Maybe people are constantly touting. Um, but there was no evidence, obviously, Mitchell had done. So, yeah, he was shot and he ran for his life and he sold up his house. He shut up his bar. He obviously realised it was a miracle he survived that shooting. Um, his girlfriend came back to Ireland and he went to initially to Amsterdam, where two years later he was arrested with, with Trainer. Um, but really after that, he must have remained... The fact that he kept himself so under the radar, there's no intelligence here over the past decade to suggest he has any dealings into the Irish market, which I find extraordinary. I think that tells me a tale that he remained afraid of the Kinahan organisation throughout the last decade. Yeah, I, I think the, the police were the, the least of his problems. I mean, I think he, he obviously he was more worried about the Kinahan cartel than anything that the, the police could do. At least if the police arrest you, you know, you, you get to stay alive. Whereas if, you know, the Kinnans catch up with you and they want you dead and they catch up with you, like they're, you're not, you're not mm. going to get parole anytime soon. Like he certainly won't be getting a chance for freedom in three and a half years if it was the Kinnans that have caught up with him this time. So, yeah, I mean, like the fact that he hasn't had any connection, you know, and, you know, working out of uh, an address in Bradford, dealing with, you know, uh, dealers in, in South Wales, you know, it does show that, you know, he'd, he'd kind of settled for, I suppose, the second tier of, of the drug dealing championships in, the, in that regards. I mean, not, not, to, not to say it wasn't a small amount. I mean, there was something like uh, 1.8 million uh, euro worth of cocaine in 18 months. So it wasn't, it wasn't exactly small time. He was caught with three kilos driving it down. So, I mean, it, like I said, I mean, it, it, it's, his, it's, his, it's his stock and trade, I guess. You know, it was his easiest, easiest way to make good money. The only thing he knew. And he's obviously settled for, at that point, a, a, a quiet life, you know, as, as quiet as it can be as a cocaine dealer. And I guess to do five years in, in prison now for 10 years of not being shot dead by the Kinnans is, is a fairly decent return. Of course, they, what follows on in the UK, it works slightly differently than here. After somebody's convicted of a crime, there is an automatic proceeds of crime case investigation begins into them. If assets are identified or if this, you know, 2 million or 1.6, whatever you said it was over that short period of time, they work out, they come to a mathematical calculation of what Mitchell should pay. And if he doesn't pay that, or if any criminal doesn't pay up, they get extra time in jail. So he could be looking at another year or so. But still, it's it's a short enough sentence given um, exactly what you say uh, the alternative might have been. His Lawyer in court said, and we're only relying on what was said in court. We don't, unfortunately, have the exact inside story into what was going on in Wales. If anybody's listening and wants to give us a ring, please do. But uh, his lawyer sort of said he was a member and not a leader of that gang. Um, reading between the lines, I would have thought storing the drugs and transporting them is very high risk activity for somebody like Mitchell. He's gone down the ranks even within the, you know, that lesser tier of, of uh, organised crime. Yeah, it, it does actually suggest that. I mean, normally you, you would imagine anyone who's at the, you know, the, the money-making end of the drug deal is going to give someone a thousand quid to drive those three, three kilos down to Wales from Bradford and not do it yourself and, you know, risk spending all this time in prison. So, I mean, it, it really does look like he was, 
he has been demoted down the ranks. You know, it's hard to. I mean, normally when you hear a lawyer um, making you know a mitigation argument like that, uh, you kind of you know you don't you know you think well that's you know the lawyer's doing his best. He's got his instructions and he's going to do his best for his his client in court and say you know it, it was a one off or it, it, it was the only time you know he he's mm. been he's never going and he's never going to do it again and. You know, he was only, a, a, you know, a cog at the bottom and he kind of felt he had to because he was under financial pressure. You hear all these excuses all the time. Yeah. And sometimes you know that, well, you know, the person involved is actually much higher up. But, the, you know, they're able to they're able to bring a fact based arguments to court. So, you know, in, in that sense, from their point of view, good luck to them. They're able to do that. Uh, it does. It is unusual, but you know we don't know for sure. I mean, maybe there was a lot of pressure to get this three kilos in, and the person supposed to be going went out sick. I mean, he did complain all those mm. years ago about how hard it was to find staff, and presumably yeah. he wasn't paying them. You know, the thousand or whatever it was the eight thousand euro a week that the, the likes of uh, Charlie Bowden was allegedly you know was supposed to be getting when he was working for them. So, I mean, like, he's been lucky before. Um, like, he was caught with a fairly big stash in Holland in, in, in uh, I think, 2005. And again, it, it, there was a link with Train. It was an address owned by him. Uh, and he was with a, another relative of, of Hippo Ward. And I think there was, there was another relation of his. And there was um, a, a, liver, a Liverpudlian that was actually in, in the apartment and some Eastern Europeans and fake Irish passports that had been stolen from an Irish embassy in Europe. And, and he, he only got three years that time. And that was, I think, 10 kilos. So, I mean, if you'd been caught with 10 kilos in Ireland, he would have had a, a much tougher sentence. So you can argue, you know, he, he's lower down, you know, he's lowing down the pecking order and he's looking at, you know, a tough sentence. But it, to some extent, he's a bit lucky. He was certainly lucky when the Kinnahans went to kind of, uh, you know, hand him his pension scheme in Spain that time. Mm. You're making crime sound very attractive, Eamon. I'm sure you don't intend to, but <laughs> no. Look, I, I, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm trying to look at it from from his point of view. You know that it's it, it's you know like doing getting caught. It's it's a you know it's a professional hazard. It's a it's something that you, you it, it, it can happen, and you try and minimise how often that happens. And then when it does, you try and minimise how long you're going to have to go in for. I mean, certainly, like you're you were saying, you're talking about a year or two on some of those assets hearings in the UK, but some of them, they can actually double. I mean, we saw that with that, um, the Irish brothel keeper that was done in Wales and his sentence went from something like 12 to 21 years. And there were some of the Irish connected families who were, who were done for um, slaves, for, for keeping people in slave-like conditions and workers. And their sentences, again, you know, they were at, it was like, I think it was eight and 10 years in some cases added oh, because they, they, were, mm. they, were, they were caught deliberately trying to hide the assets, trying to transfer them. So they were, they were punished mm. for that. But uh, so if he does have any money and he doesn't hand it over, he, he will face a much stiffer sentence because they kind of delay it to see if they're going to cooperate first. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a different way of operating um, than we have here. I, I want to have the final rant, if you don't mind, because Mitchell, this is a bit of a, you know, I have a bee in my bonnet about this. Mitchell was caught because of the EncroChat investigation. EncroChat was a joint operation between Dutch and French police. And between March and June of 2020, the March and July, sorry, of 2020, police were listening live in to thousands and thousands of these encrypted phones that criminals were using. And various territories in Europe were given that live information and they were, it was handed to them so as they could then go forward with their arrests and break up drug gangs. And we've heard in the Netherlands how a torture chamber was found and loads of, if you Google EncroChat, you will see 
hundreds of stories relating to drug gangs, criminals, all over Europe that have been brought before the courts. Many of them have pleaded guilty. Many of them are serving lengthy sentences. There was an enormous amount of weapons, money, etc. seized during that, that time period and after it, um, when it was eventually emerged that these phones had been hacked. Ireland got the information because we were a partner country uh, in, in this Europe-wide um, sharing of intelligence. And the information came in and it went in to the unit of the Gardaí that are responsible for intelligence gathering and security. And my understanding is that they decided to just keep it for intelligent files. And we have seen very little evidence in this country of anybody being arrested, of any operations um, being credited to EncroChat. It seems to me that it was the greatest opportunity in policing history, and it was missed. I'm not going to argue with you, Nicola. <laughs> I mean, look, we've heard some of the arguments, um, just to be devil's advocate, we've heard some of the arguments that, you know, the convictions may not be safe going forward, but, you know, why should that necessarily stop you going ahead with it anyway in the first place? Um, and, and again, in some cases, you don't know what's going to come out, that, you know, somebody might successfully say, well, you got me on EncroChat, and then, but, you know, you've got to divulge now under Irish court rules. You've got to give me all the EncroChat relating to me. And it mightn't be just relating to your case. It could be you talking to all sorts of people. And there could be all sorts of reasons why, you know, it, it's, it's, it mightn't be good practice to necessarily, you know, drag some of this stuff in, into the daylight. It, it might a, a expose you know, high-level informers in, in, in some of these criminal gangs. So, but having said that, you do wonder, like, you know, the only Irish criminals who've been arrested and, and are facing prosecution or have already been found guilty as a, as, as a result of these phone um, hacks have been in other jurisdictions, whether it's the UK, Northern Ireland, Holland, France. I mean, some of my friends from Rathkeel were caught with um, the rhino horns, and again, that was Encro Chat was involved in that. So, yeah, it's it's right across the board. No, it's there for anybody to go and read up on themselves and, and you know, make their own judgment on it. But I definitely find it extraordinary that um, that information wasn't handled in the same way as it was in other countries and sent on down the line to local drug units, etc., etc. Anyway, I've said my piece. So for now, we shall leave that. And uh, thank you very much, Eamon Dillon. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.